If we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Dominic. I'm one of the pastor elders here. Like Chad said, we're going to be in um, the book of John, chapter 11. I will be reading and preaching from the NIV today. So today marks the start of Advent. And like Chad said, uh, we're taking the next four weeks to observe Advent. If you don't know what Advent is, it's a tradition that began in the fourth century as a way for Christians to pause and remember the life of Jesus in general. And then in the Middle Ages, it evolved into what it is now, which is a time for Christians to specifically observe, remember uh, that Jesus came and that he is coming. And so, given the nature of Advent, Advent is about waiting. It's about uh, waiting in expectation for Jesus to come to the earth the first time and then for return, to return to the earth. And uh, because it is about waiting, that means that there is either two options. We either wait with an unknown, uncertain expectation of what is coming or we wait with a solid expectation. And because we're waiting for Jesus who never fails, that means that Advent for us is a time of waiting with expectation, which means then that we have hope in the waiting, which is the title of this sermon. Hope in the waiting. Would you pray with me? We come to you today, Lord, the all-sufficient one, the great I am, who is everything and more than we need or could ever imagine. The one who knows every nuance of what's happening in our minds and hearts at this very moment, every nuance of what's happening in every single season of life, and who knows better than we know exactly what we need. And so we ask, Lord, that from that place of all sufficiency that you would speak to your church today. In Jesus' name, amen. In January of this year, uh, my wife and I found basically our dream house. It was the worst house in um, basically the, the best neighborhood, like our favorite neighborhood. And it was, it was a foreclosure. And so it was perfect. It was like, man, we can like curate this thing however we want it to be. And so we spoke to the bank. So it was a foreclosure, bank-owned property. Spoke to the bank. We negotiated a price that we both were happy with. And then we waited for the bank to sign the contract. But it turns out, because it was a bank-owned property, that there was some complications with the title and some other big things that I won't get into now. So then began more waiting. A week after we found this property, our landlord, we rent a house right now, our landlord called us and said, hey, I'm selling the house you live in. And so it put us in, which is super fun, right? If you've ever been there, renting a house, your landlord calls you, I'm selling your house. It's happened to us twice in our life. And uh, it put us in this place of kind of limbo, right? Where we didn't really know what was going to happen. And then I honestly allowed myself to, um, because it seemed like a slam dunk with this foreclosure, get, get my hopes up and get my expectations up about this thing. Um, so much so that I, I drew up plans for the entire backyard, which is just this empty lot of dirt right now. And 
had designers come over and talked about walls we'd move and we even picked out the floor we want, all that stuff, right? Really allowed myself to like go there. I was even pretty sure that God spoke to me and said, hey, this house is yours. So I've allowed myself to expect this house to be ours and hope in this thing coming to pass. But it's been 11 months now and we are still waiting. And our hope, honestly, is growing a little bit dim. 2,000 years ago, Israel was waiting. And they had been waiting a lot longer than 11 months. Um, Actually, for a few thousand years, God had been speaking about this coming Messiah. But in that time when they were waiting for those few thousand years, God was showing up. And so though the Messiah hadn't come, God was showing up in all these really profound ways and speaking to them. At least God wasn't silent in their waiting. That is, until he was silent in their waiting. In the year 430 BC, God spoke through the prophet Malachi one last time, and then he didn't say a word for 400 years. And that's where you find Israel when Christ is born. They've been waiting there in the first century, waiting for God, wondering if God had forgotten about them, When will the Messiah come? They had hoped in God, but their hope was growing a little bit dim. And 10 generations before them had passed. Since God had said a single word, the Messiah still hadn't shown up. Jesus still hadn't come, and Israel was waiting. And that is what Advent is about. It is about waiting for Jesus, remembering that God's people waited for Jesus in his first coming, but also the reality that we are waiting for Jesus in his second coming. But... Between the, or in the space, rather, between Jesus coming in his first coming and Jesus returning in his second coming, here we are, in that space, right here, right now. In the space where we are waiting for Jesus to return, yes, but how many of us right now feel like we're waiting for Jesus to just show up? Like, Lord, just show up. Come on, Lord, please, Come. Today, I'd like to look at a story in John 11 of a family who knew this idea of waiting for Jesus to show up all too well. And it's a long passage, reading basically the whole, whole thing, so uh, track with me here. We're going to skip a few verses for time's sake. John 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for the glory of God's son. Sorry, it's for for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Skip down to verse 11. After he'd said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Now down to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, so many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she sent out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. 
Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you have <clears throat> had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the earth. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. What we see here is a family waiting, a family who had been waiting for days for Jesus to show up and move. And today I want to look at four things from this story that I believe God has for us. First of all, God's moving is not always in our timing. Somebody who's been walking with Jesus for a while say amen. <laughs> God's moving is not always in our timing. By the time that Jesus finally shows up, Lazarus is not just dead. He's dead plus four days, which means that they, he had died, and then they mourned his body, and then they prepared his body for burial, and then they prepared the tomb for burial, and then they buried him, and then he was in the tomb for four days. Lazarus is not just dead. Lazarus is what, what I would call dead dead. If you can be like super dead, Lazarus was super dead. And it was too late. It was too late. And for Mary and Martha, not only was their brother dead, but their hopes were dead. They had been waiting and waiting, and Jesus did not come through. And now it was too late for him to come through. But what they couldn't see was that Jesus was actually working in the waiting. I think that somebody here today needs to hear that Jesus is always working in the waiting. Now, when Jesus got word about Lazarus, 
He responds by saying in verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. So Jesus knew how it would end, and he told his disciples how it would end. But notice that he never sent word to Mary, Martha, or Lazarus to tell them how it would end. See, we don't always get the game plan. We don't always get the goal from God. Sometimes all we get is exactly what they got, silence. So all they could see was that Jesus did not come, nor did he send word to assure them that he was even aware of their situation, much less that everything was going to be okay. How many times have you been in that place where it's like, Lord, do you even hear me? Like, God, do you not see what's happening right now? And if, Lord, if you see, like, do you care? Because if you cared, I'm pretty sure that you would. But we have a different vantage point in this story than Mary, Martha, and Lazarus did. We get to see that Jesus was not aloof or uninterested in this situation. Jesus was actually very intentional in his absence and his silence. There was purpose in his waiting. Jesus is always working in the waiting. They thought that they were waiting for the plan of God to unfold, namely Jesus coming in and healing their brother. But what we need to see is that in the kingdom, we are not just waiting for God's plans to unfold. Often, waiting is God's plan. Jesus wasn't too busy to move in their timing. He just had a different timing. We are usually so concerned with getting to the destination of where we think we should be or even where we believe God wants us to be that we miss what he's trying to do in the process of getting to the destination. If you're still waiting, church, it's not because God has forgotten about you or got busy. It's because he's not done working. Often the journey is the destination. And God is just as present in, if not more, in the process than he is in the conclusion. And what we see here is that in the waiting, even in the silence, that that was God's plan. It, the waiting, the silence, was God's plan. And was also actually a demonstration of his love. It wasn't his negligence, his dislike, or his indifference. It was his love. Notice what Jesus said in verse 5. I'm sorry, what John says about Jesus in verse 5. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, okay, in light of the fact that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus because of his love, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed. Because he loved them, he stayed where he was for two more days. Did you notice that after Lazarus died, and once Jesus finally shows up, that Mary doesn't go out to greet him? Uh, check it out in verse 20. When, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed home. Now this is Mary, John tells us, this is Mary, sister of Lazarus, who came and poured out her alabaster flask at the feet of Jesus, pouring out her entire life before him. This is Mary, who when her sister Martha was working in the kitchen, she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing her word, doing what Jesus called the better thing. Mary, she loves Jesus, and Jesus loves her. But this Mary did not go out to greet Jesus when he came. Even her sister goes out 
to meet Jesus, but she seems to keep herself at a distance. And I've been there. I've been there. Some of you are there today. God hasn't come through in the way that we expected him to, and so we find ourselves at a distance, quite frankly, disappointed in our waiting. Maybe even doubting that he cares, doubting that he's actually good. We're not sure that he actually sees or knows, or at least if he cares, that he cares enough to do something about it. But notice the father heart of Jesus in verse 28. It says, after she, Martha, had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. Some of you need to know today that your father is asking for you. He's saying, hey, where's so-and-so? Tell them I want to see him. Tell them I want to talk to them. Mary chose to stay home. It was a, honestly a disrespectful thing to not go greet your rabbi when he was coming to your home or to your community. She stayed home. Jesus didn't show up like she expected and believed he would. And she is disappointed, no doubt, maybe even a little bit angry. But Jesus pursues her with the love of the Father and says, Tell Mary, I want to see her. And this is the first priority that Jesus has when he shows up on the scene. Not the dead dude who's getting more dead by the second, but Mary's heart is Jesus' priority when he shows up to this dramatic, sorrowful, pitiful scene. Because Jesus is always more concerned with your heart than he is with your healing. And like any good father, he cares more about your person than your situation. And he will use your situation to get to your person. Maybe right now God is using your situation trying to get to your person. He may be withholding your healing or your deliverance in order to get to your heart. Jesus wasn't too busy to move in their timing. He just had a different plan of when he was going to move. And he also had a different plan of how he was going to move, which brings us to our second point. God may not always move how we want or expect him to. Somebody who's been around for a little while say amen. The expectation was for Jesus to heal Lazarus. That's how they wanted and expected Jesus to move. But Jesus didn't heal Lazarus. And then when he finally showed up, he didn't show up with what they had expected him to show up with. In fact, he was too late to give them what they thought they needed. What they wanted and what they thought they needed was a healing. But Jesus was too late for a healing. However, he was right in time for a resurrection. The hope and the expectation was that Jesus would heal Lazarus, but Jesus didn't want to heal Lazarus, church. He wanted to show up and raise Lazarus. And somebody needs to hear today that maybe God doesn't want to just heal you. Maybe he wants to resurrect you. 
Maybe he doesn't want to do what you hope and expect him to. Maybe he has a different and, dare I say, better plan. Now, I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking the same thing. All right, dude. If I could guarantee that in exchange for the thing I want, that I would get an upgrade, I'd be down to wait too. Like if you could guarantee me a resurrection status upgrade, yeah, I'll wait. How many of you know that the resurrection is an upgrade, right? The resurrection is an upgrade from the healing. Like if you're at, at Testimony Sunday at a church and the dude in front of you gets up and testifies about how he was dead and then Jesus raised him from the dead, you don't go up. <laughs> you go sit back down because the resurrection is always an upgrade, Right? But listen, God's plan is always an upgrade, even if it's not the resurrection, even if it's not a resurrection. And it is always a demonstration of his love because God's economy is different than our economy, which means that sometimes an upgrade looks like him working his resurrection, not in our physical man, but in our spiritual man. Sometimes a resurrection means him working not in our physical realm, but in our spiritual realm. Because he is not just after your healing, he's after your heart. And I can tell you from experience that it is still a demonstration of his love when he doesn't show up like you expect him to. When he doesn't bring the healing, but instead brings some like heart work. For these women that day, it appeared as if Jesus had no clue or if he did, that he didn't care. But what they couldn't see was that Jesus was actually right there all along, working in every tear, in every doubt, in every single part of the disappointment, in their cursing, in their wondering if he was good, in their waiting, Jesus was right there. And I know you can't see Jesus in the waiting, and I know that it might seem like he didn't get the memo about your situation. But he just had a different plan for how and when he would show up. And it's not always going to look like how we want or expect it to. That was the case then. It is the case now. And it was certainly the case with Israel as they were waiting for the coming of their Messiah. It did not look like Israel wanted it to. Some of y'all feel like you've been waiting for a long time. 400 years! 400 years, that's the generation of my great, 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 great grandparents. They had been waiting. And when the Messiah finally showed up after 400 years of silence, it was not like they expected it to be. They expected a conquering king. But instead, what they got was a suffering servant. They expected Jesus to come up and uh, wielding earthly power. Instead, he was wielding spiritual power. They expected him to be born of a king in a castle. Instead, he was born of a virgin in a manger. He was not what they expected. Israel wanted, if you will, a healing. But what God had in mind was a resurrection. And it was everything that they never knew they needed. So don't be surprised when you're waiting for God to show up in a certain way 
if when it actually happens, it looks a little bit different than you expected. He knows exactly what you need. Like Jesus said in Matthew 6, 8, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask. Thirdly, I mentioned it earlier, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. God is always working in the waiting. What the sisters of Lazarus couldn't see on that day or even in those four days, and what many of us can't see in the waiting is that Jesus is actually orchestrating the entire time. When all you feel is death, when all you see is waiting, when all you hear is silence, Jesus is actually working. He is orchestrating what needs to be orchestrated in order for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done. And it is for his glory and his purpose, but it is also for your good. Which means that not only is Jesus working around you, but he is working in you. Which admittedly is not the most comfortable thing in the world sometimes. You remember what it's like uh, for your kids or maybe for you as a kid to show up on Christmas morning, come down the stairs, out of the room or whatever, and ask if you can open up the gifts and to have your parents say no. Here's how I grew up. There's six kids in the house, right? Christmas morning was like this. If you woke up first, you had to wait for all the other kids to get up. You're not allowed to wake anybody up. You're not allowed to wake your parents up. When all the people finally get up, then my mom would bring us to the den where baby Jesus would be laying in a manger. And then she'd make us sing happy birthday to baby Jesus (laughs) to remind us that this wasn't our birthday. And then... She'd have us join her in making the, like, biggest homemade spread of breakfast you can ever imagine. So I'm not talking, like, two-minute Legos, let's go open the presents. Legos? Egos. <laughs> Lego my ego. I'm talking, like, an hour-long blueberry muffin, like, from scratch kind of a deal. I've been up since 5.30. And then about 10 a.m., now we get to do some gifts. There was no hope in that waiting. Right? My mom was working in us in that way. What that felt like to me was death in the waiting. But isn't that how it often feels? It feels like death in the waiting. And that's literally how it felt for these women during those days. But Jesus had a plan there. And he had a plan, and he has a plan, rather, with you in your situation. And his plan is glorious and honestly better than yours. It is always an upgrade. However, because the economy of God is not like our economy, better means better for the glory of God and better for us on a soul level inside, which doesn't always mean better for us on a human level outside. And sometimes that's a little bit of work. Sometimes that hurts. Sometimes that feels like a little bit of death. See, Jesus wanted to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that's amazing. But let me tell you something about being raised from the dead. What is the one prerequisite for resurrection? Death. Death is the one prerequisite for resurrection. That's it. If you're dead, then you can be resurrected. That's the one requirement. Jesus had a plan to do something bigger and better in Lazarus' life than 
anybody could have imagined, but it was going to require death. Sometimes in order to get to the glory of the resurrection, that's going to require some kind of dying. And for 99% of us, it's not going to be like a physical, like we're going to die. It's going to be a dying to self. It's going to be a dying to our will. A death of our plan. A death of our dreams or expectations. The Bible calls this kind of death surrender. Death for the living child of God is called surrender. But you know what? Even something as heavy as the dying and the death is actually working in us something far better, an eternal weight of glory. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal Glory that far outweighs them all. We have an eternal hope that is bigger, church, than the disappointments of our lives and better than our grandest expectations. And every momentary affliction is working in us. God is always working in the waiting. And so then, we can even exult in our tribulations, knowing that the tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proving character. And proving character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. All the trials, all the fire, all of the waiting, it is all culminating in character that leads to hope. The kind of hope that cannot and will not disappoint. Which means that there is hope in the waiting. This brings us to our next point. Number four, I am our hope in the waiting. When Lazarus was sick, what they had hoped for was Jesus, the healer, to show up. But what they failed to miss was that Jesus wasn't just the healer. He was the healing. When Lazarus finally dies then, one might have said, our only hope is that someone comes and raises Lazarus from the dead. But when Jesus shows up, he doesn't show up as the resurrector. He shows up as the resurrection, right? That's what he said. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Not I bring resurrection. I, that's, it's me. I'm it. Not, yeah, I do it. I can do it. But I'm it. I'm it. I am the resurrection. In what seems like a situation full of nothing, Other than sorrow and hopelessness, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And though you may not see or sense me doing anything, I'm actually already there. I am there. The thing might not be there yet. But I am there in the waiting, which means then that in our waiting, we are not left waiting and wondering. We are left waiting with certainty. Hope has to do with the future, right? Always. It always has to do with something in the future. It could be a minute from now. It could be a century from now. But hope has to do with the future. And the dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. So track with me here. Track with me here. The feeling of expectation, hope, is contingent on something good 
in the future. This means that hope is only present as long as there remains an expectation. If you lose the expectation, then you lose the hope. Which means then that our hope is only as secure as whatever we are hoping for or whatever our hope is in. Let me say it again. We'll put it on the screen. Our hope is only as stable as the object of our hope. And if you are anything like me and have had seasons of life where you are constantly living in a state of disappointment, it is most likely because the object of your hope, what you placed your hope in, was unstable and quite frankly never intended to and couldn't provide stability. I want to do a little quick little exercise with you here. Close your eyes, if you don't mind, with me. Fill in the blank here with your own words, whatever comes to your mind, whatever the first thing is that comes to your mind. Fill in the blank here with the first thing that comes to your mind. I hope that... I hope so-and-so... Blank is my only hope here. See, your hope will only ever be as stable as whatever you filled in the blank with. And if it's anything other than the I am, then you will constantly be living in a place of disappointment. That's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. Because it's only there in the great I am, the all-sufficient one, that we find a hope that cannot disappoint. A hope that will not ever change or grow weary or tired or fade or lose its luster. Isaiah 40, the prophet writes, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Hope does not disappoint because biblical hope is placed squarely in God and the promises of God who cannot disappoint. He does not grow weary or tired. He does not fade, fail, or faint. He does not become weak or lose his effectiveness. We become disappointed because we live with hope of futures that can fail. Do grow tired and weary. Do fail and faint. Do have, uh, they do lose their power and effectiveness. Do lose their lackluster and ultimately won't satisfy and will inevitably let us down. We put our hope in things like the relationship being reconciled. It's temporal. Or in the economy turning around. Or in the dream coming to pass. Or in the thing that I thought God spoke to me coming to pass. When I thought it would come to pass, or the career opportunity, or the family, or the house, or the spouse, all temporal things. There's there's single people in here today who your lives are on hold. Your lives are on hold. Your life is on hold to you. In your mind, your life is on hold because you're waiting for that person to show up 
for your spouse to show up. Finally, curing that longing in the soul to not be alone anymore. Your hope of a good and pleasant future is wrapped up, honestly, guys, in some figurative person who will inevitably fail and disappoint you on a regular basis. All the married people are giggling right now. Because every married person in here who's been married longer than a couple of months will agree with me when I say that the idea of marriage will always overpromise and underdeliver. <laughs> always, the woman said. <laughs> every single time. It's not your fix all. In fact, it may not be your fix anything. You know the saying, uh, more money, more problems? We all say that. We're like, yeah, more money, more problems. Well, single ladies, let me just manage your expectations here. More man, more problems. <laughs> Fellas, more woman, more problems. And listen, I have an incredible marriage. I'm infatuated with my wife. And I'm better with her by my side. But there's a reason that Paul said to Christians in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're not married, don't look to be. Because no marriage, no problems. He says there, he who is married is concerned with the things of the world, how he can please his wife. And she who is married is concerned with the things of the world, how she may please her husband. But the one who is not married is concerned with the things of the Lord, how they may please the Lord. We often, so often, live in disappointment because we place our hope in a, a thing like a dream of marriage or in some other temporal thing instead of in the rock of ages who cannot and will not fail. He's the one. He is the great I am. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the hope. Romans 15. May the God of all hope now fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what, you see, see what happened there? The overflowing of hope comes when we trust in him, the God of all hope. Psalm 31. Be strong and take a heart, all you who hope in the Lord. The strength of heart, he's saying, is for those only who hope in the Lord. He is the only object of all unfailing hope. We're not talking about hoping in God who is our transit or who is our vehicle to some other desired destination. He's not our huckleberry who gets us to the treasure. Don't you know that Jesus is the treasure? He is the destination. Kevin said it last week when he taught on inheritance. He is our inheritance. He is not the source of getting us hope. He is the hope. He's it. Jesus is the hope. I don't know about you, man, but I don't want to live disappointed all the time. I don't want to constantly get my hopes up only to have them let down. I, I am the poster child for disappointment because I'm a big dreamer who has an optimistic outlook on life, which means that I always dream bigger than is actually realistic. And because I'm an optimist, I always expect the outcome of that dream to be better than it will ever be. It is a recipe for disastrous disappointment. And a little confession corner here. I am in that place way more often than I would like to admit. 
and it is way less because of the actions of other people or because we live in this fallen world and all because of the fact that I so often place my hope in things that can disappoint me. When I've been most hopeless and disappointed is because I have placed my hope in things that can disappoint. When I've built my house of hope on the sand instead of on the rock of ages. But the invitation from God is, child, come hope in me. Build your house of hope on the rock who does not, will not, and cannot disappoint. There's hope in the waiting because Jesus is in the waiting. And Jesus is the hope. Not what he can do, but who he is. And he is there in the waiting every time, the source of all hope. So listen, the expectation, if we have expectation, not of him doing something for us, but just being there with us, then we don't have to ever wonder if we should get our hopes up. Because our hope is not then in a situation turning out a certain way, but in the very presence of God. It is not in the fact that he may resurrect the situation or he may bring life to the situation. It is in the fact that he is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just provide the provision, guys. He is the provision. He doesn't want to just answer prayers. He is the answer to the prayer. And this is so critical to note because remember our point about when Jesus shows up, it doesn't always look like what we think it will look like. That means that sometimes when Jesus shows up, he isn't going to do anything. Sometimes Jesus showing up just means that he shows up. His presence being present. And for those of us who have been in situations where Jesus has shown up and manifested his presence in a tangible way and did not fix the thing that we were asking him to fix, we can testify that his nearness really is our good and that his presence really is better than life itself. It's better than my life. It's better than their life. And it's better than anything that this life can bring. What brought life into the situation that day with Lazarus was not that Jesus had the power to do. It was that he had the power to be. Maybe Jesus wants to be in your life and in your situation before he wants to do a single thing. And Yeah, he can raise anybody from the dead he wants to and bring life into any situation he wants to. But the truth is, and the beauty is, he's already the resurrection. He's already the life. And that's what the Advent season is about. Being in a place of waiting where God is the only one who can deliver. With Israel, it had been 400 years of silence and waiting and they desperately needed a savior and they could only look to God as such. And that is exactly where God wanted them and it's exactly where God wants us, hoping in nothing else that could ever let us down, but only hoping in him, the one who can never let us down. But I'll close with this. The difference between Israel then and us now is that they only had the future hope of what was to come. And we have a future hope also that Christ will return. But guys, you know what we have right now that they didn't have? We have the fulfillment 
of what has already been done, namely, Emmanuel, God with us right now. God with us right now. We have right now in this very moment his living presence, which means that we can be expectant of Christ to be with us 10 years from now, 10 days from now, and 10 seconds from now. Right now. Right? We can expect him to be with us. Are you waiting for something? I want to encourage you as a brother. What is your hope in? What, are you, what is your expectations in? Shift them from that to Jesus, the only one who can't fail. And during this second set of worship, listen, these carpets are here for us to take a posture of praise and humility and surrender before God. It's so that you don't hurt your knees on the concrete. That's why the carpets are here. And listen, I'm telling you, if your heart is having a hard time turning toward God, and it's, it's always like over here, like, ah, like these other things. Come and surrender with your body. Put your body in a place of surrender. And I guarantee you, your heart will begin to follow what your body does. Come get on your knees. There was something anointed about this space in this room. I don't know why. Sometimes God just like, he's like over here waiting. He's just like, yeah, what's up? Are you going to come see me on the carpets? He's just like here. So come see him on the carpets. Humble yourself before him. Let your heart follow your body as you take a posture of humility and surrender. And this week, bask in his presence. Like, turn toward him and fight for him. And keep fighting. Keep fighting for that intimacy, for that presence with him. Turn off your stinking phone for an hour. Shut up your mind and your noisy heart, and just allow yourself to receive from the Lord. And as you do, do what Psalm 130 says, find hope in his word. It's the last thing I'll say. Faith and hope work in tandem together. And the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Same can be said of hope. Hope comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. I didn't say Hope comes by reading and reading the word of God. I didn't say hope comes by listening to sermons and listening to the word of God. Hope comes by hearing. Some of y'all have been reading and listening for a long time, but have still have yet to hear the voice of God. So hear his voice. Hear his heart on every page of scripture. And as you do, the hope will come. Amen.